from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Yeah, I think it's a good lawsuit. Again, how far do you carry it out? That's what lawyers have been telling me now for a year. I think moral turpitude means whatever you want it to mean. You can't be forced to testify against your spouse. The Supreme Court did not get into these hypotheticals. You cannot use public funds to advocate a political position. And while I'm there buying cocaine, I hit somebody. This is clearly an abuse of the position. It's a failure to supervise. It's all kinds of wrong. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. A Missouri teacher was accused of sleeping with her student, but found a surprising get-out-of-jail-free card. How did she do it? A local center that treats people with eating disorders hired a woman to be a counselor, even though she had boasted publicly about how she enjoyed hurting others. Could the center be in legal trouble? And a company employed a St. Louis County man, even as he was accused of harassing people. They gave him a cell phone and a company car, which he apparently used in his campaign of harassment. Do they have liability? Well, we'll discuss all these topics and much more on this month's Legal Roundtable. And we have a panel of top attorneys with us today to do it. Eric Banks is a former state prosecutor and city counselor for the city of St. Louis. He's now in private practice at Banks Law. Eric, welcome. Thank you. And we're also joined today by Nicole Gorofsky. She's a former prosecutor. She's now in private practice at Gorofsky Law. Nicole, welcome. Good afternoon. And we're also joined today by Mark Smith. He's a former vice chancellor and dean of career services at Washington University. Mark, welcome. Thanks. So a lawsuit was filed on Tuesday over the state's, quote, dysfunctional administration of the federal program that used to be called food snaps, food stamps. Today it's called SNAP. I just mix those two words. Apparently, the Missouri Department of Social Services has an incredibly burdensome process in place to access it. Mark, what is the gist of this lawsuit here? Yeah, so to get your benefits, you have to, uh, Missouri requires you to come in for um, an interview, basically. And you can do it over the phone. And in fact, you have to kind of do it over the phone because they're not letting people come into the offices. And so uh, the plaintiff in this case was trying to get it and, you know, said I would stay on the phone for like four hours on hold and I could never do it. So she has sued and with assistance from legal services and some other groups uh, to say, this is violating my 14th Amendment rights. I have a right to due process to a, a process to get these benefits that I'm entitled to. And you're, you, the state of Missouri, has created a system where it's arbitrary and capricious and I can't get through to get my benefits. And so, uh, and apparently the state of Missouri has received money from the federal government to, to help with this program. and. and there's not, it's not cl clear how that money's been used. No, nothing saying nothing. I'm not saying anything bad. I'm just yeah. saying it's not clear. That's they're one just of the things not they point to. greenlighting people who say right. they qualify. Right. So what they're saying is get a process that works quicker, get this woman her uh, benefits, pay her attorney's fees, and let's fix the process going forward. So I'm interested in the use of the 14th Amendment here, this idea of due process. Nicole, does this make sense that this would be a good legal claim to say we've been denied our due process rights to try to get SNAP benefits? So in looking at the lawsuit that was filed, it's actually one among many claims. Right. So um, I do kind of think this might be one of the weaker claims. 
I think it's a little tenuous here to to bring in the 14th Amendment. And it says um, they're they're saying um, they subjected individuals, eligible individuals, so people who would be eligible for these SNAP benefits to arbitrary denials of benefits in violation of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution made actionable by 42 U.S.C. 1983. So basically they're saying these state actors, so these these Missouri actors, are acting under the color of state law in order to prevent people from getting their benefits. But what I thought were um, also some of the interesting claims is that um, there are people, some of the, there are two plaintiffs in the case and uh, at least one of them I think suffers from some disabilities. And so there are also some claims under the Americans with Disabilities Act about, you know, how is this person supposed to actually, you know, when things are open, go in person to get her benefits. And if the phone system is not working and she's not able to get her benefits that way, you know, that is a violation or a potential violation of American with Disabilities Act. And so, um, you know, as a general, um, as a general lawsuit here, there were several different types of claims that may have validity here, and that Fourteenth Amendment claim was just one of them. Okay, and you see that as one of the weaker ones. Maybe the claims under the ADA, there's going to be a stronger case there. Potentially. So something I was interested in here is the parties that were suing. This lawsuit was filed by Empower Missouri. They're an activist group. It was also filed by two people who've been directly affected by this. I was curious about the fact it wasn't a class action lawsuit. Eric, any thoughts on whether these particular plaintiffs, can they bring about changes just suing as individuals? Yes, they can. And probably the reason why it's not a class action lawsuit is it doesn't need to be. So if they have two plaintiffs, that's one more than necessary to achieve the desired result. So just one person could sue and say this process is screwed up and that could force changes not just for their case, but maybe for the whole system. Absolutely. Okay. And Empower Missouri, as a, a, non, as a nonprofit, they are also bringing this suit in addition to these two individuals. Nicole, what, what are your thoughts on those issues? Yeah, so one of the things, uh, one of the reasons it didn't need to be a class action lawsuit here is because they're not actually suing for personal monetary damages here. They're suing for declaratory uh, and injunctive relief, which means they're suing to make changes in the system. So. Um, their lawsuit isn't a, a typical lawsuit that you would hear about where I'm suing somebody else for monetary damages. Instead, it's they're suing this uh, SNAP governmental system in Missouri to say, hey, you have to stop running it this way. Hmm. So that's the difference here. So I'm reading their litany of how people are handled as they try to qualify for benefits. It sounds Kafkaesque. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a nightmare. All these words that, that people like to use to describe Byzantine systems that do not help people. I imagine that the State Department that is running this, this agency, that they would say, hey, COVID hit us hard. We can't figure out a way to be safely in person. We're having the kind of staffing issues that everyone, all around the country is having. Mark, is that a legal defense? Well, I don't think, if they have a, a duty to administer this program this way, and I'm also not sure that those excuses will really work on this this excuse because they're, they, you know, they're talking about wait times of four and six hours. So you could have people working from home, answering the phones and processing um, folks. And they, as we mentioned before, they've got this federal money to kind of supplement it. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm 
maybe maybe it's more complicated than I'm thinking, and and maybe they'll have some good excuses. But I suspect this may be a case where, you know, somebody says, "Hey, what's going on in this department?" and they get their act together a little bit more, and and then it goes away. That feels very optimistic, yeah, but I, I, so. I like your thinking on this. I have also heard from many people trying to sign up for unemployment benefits in Missouri that the idea of four to six hours. Uh, uh, waiting online is nothing, that people get stuck doing this right. for days. Eric, is it possible that there, you know, somebody could have a really good claim against other state systems that are equally dysfunctional in Missouri, and all they would need is that one plaintiff who's been directly affected? Yes, and I think that all that they would further need is to get a copy of this lawsuit and gerrymander the facts around, because I think this lawsuit would serve as a basis for others. So it sounds like our panel thinks this lawsuit could have some some possibility of success here. Here's a different lawsuit I want to talk about. This involves the federal, the U.S. Department of Justice. They are suing over a completely different matter in Missouri. This is the Second Amendment Preservation Act. We have talked about this quite a bit on this show. This is a state law that was passed that says local law enforcement can be sued if they do anything to enforce federal gun laws. Federal government now saying, we find this to be unconstitutional. We're going to get involved and sue in federal court. Nicole, what kind of case are they making here? A very good one, in my opinion. (laughs) I think, you know, there's something called the Supremacy Clause in the United States Constitution, which basically says if there's a federal law in conflict with a state law, the federal law wins. Um, And basically, the Second Amendment Preservation Act, which is a very interesting euphemism, um, is it does just that. It literally says that in Missouri, uh, any gun law that uh, we don't have in Missouri, that's a federal law that essentially uh, Governor Parsons doesn't like, <laughs> we can't enforce here in the state. And uh, it's caused huge problems across the state. Law enforcement doesn't like it. Um, I mean, most people don't like it except the politicians. I mean, the whole point was basically, I think what happens is they look at one case that bothers them in a vacuum and then they try to pass a law um, and it goes way too far. So what's happening is our law enforcement officers across Missouri who are um, on these task forces, federal task forces, Uh, they're quitting in droves because they can be personally sued for significant amounts of money. I think it's up to Mm $50,000 for basically working with federal task forces to help, you know, work on crimes. And if they stumble into something that's a federal crime and not a Missouri crime involving a gun law, um, they can be personally sued for significant amounts of money. So, yeah, I think it's a good lawsuit by the federal government here, and it does violate the Constitution. So uh, you're seeing this as a good lawsuit here. As you say, law enforcement is very upset about this. There's a group of 60 police chiefs that are also suing over this. And then St. Louis and Kansas City to join together to try to sue over this. Well, a Cole County judge dismissed St. Louis and, and Kansas City's case in August. They're appealing on that. Eric, do you think the feds have a better chance uh, to fight this legally than St. Louis and Kansas City did? Yes, because the federal government can bring up the argument in addition to the supremacy clause of preemption. And generally speaking, if there's conflicts between a state law and a federal law, 
preemption dictates that the federal law is going to win. And so the feds have tools here that the, the city of St. Louis couldn't necessarily make these same arguments that the feds are now making. The city could make them, but it would not be as persuasive as the federal government making them. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't get to read that circuit court opinion, but I, I was surprised by it, to tell you the truth, um, because it seems pretty clear cut. Like everyone said, it's preemption, the Fed triumphs. That's what lawyers have been telling me now for a year. Yeah. This is so clear cut. And then St. Louis and Kansas City got thwarted. Yeah, I'm not sure what happened. But it's interesting, you know, that you had the argument before the Supreme Court. So uh, Judge, former Judge Durker was arguing for the city and and the defense from the Missouri Solicitor General. The only thing I heard him saying was, um, well, let's let these other cases uh, figure it out. And we don't need to do this now. And then when you look at, at uh, Missouri Attorney General Schmidt, his response to the federal suit, he he doesn't attack the legal. He just says, oh, this is partisan politics. So, you know, they always say if you've got the law, argue the law. If you've got the facts, argue the facts. If you've got nothing, then just make a lot of noise. Yeah. And it feels like they're kind of making a lot of noise right now. So here's one thing I find myself thinking about, though, and maybe you guys can yeah. tell me I'm way off base. This, to me, feels a little bit like Texas's abortion law because it allows people to go and just sue people for doing things that previously we, we thought were legal. Like in this case, being somebody who's working on a federal gun task force, a private citizen can sue for that. Is it possible we're going to need to wait for some poor law enforcement officer to have to have a lawsuit on this and to lose this lawsuit or, to, you know, to face the repercussions of this in order for someone to have standing? Oh, I don't think so. I think I think you can get some kind of uh, ruling on it before you have a, an individual in place. I mean, the Texas stuff, you know, right now it's it's very iffy. We still have, you know, this is a considered a fundamental right, abortion, but everyone kind of knows you got a lot of votes on the Supreme Court who might not say that's the case. And I think there are people maybe who are afraid to kind of take it up because they don't, you know, Roe either is going to get overturned or it will just get gutted. And um, I don't think it's the individuals bringing it that's the problem. It's the fact that um, it it's telling Missouri officials, you may not enforce laws um, that may that, you, that may implicate the Second Amendment when you're not sure, and it has this chilling effect, mm -hmm. and and it just it doesn't work. Nicole, do you share Mark's thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm not sure whether we're gonna when we're whether we're gonna get it resolved in these lawsuits, or we're gonna have to wait for somebody to get sued. But I know that waiting for someone to get sued is the wrong thing. I mean, it's just gonna be. It's going to be horrible for some, you know, law enforcement officer yeah. out there doing their job and, you know, enforcing some, you know, valid federal gun law to have to get sued and, you know, have $50,000 of his or her own personal money on the line. And it's it's ridiculous. And I know that Parson, you know, came out and said that I think he wants to take another look at this. and. Yeah. Um, I yeah. hopefully this will get resolved without it going that far. Governor Parson, former oh, law sheriff. enforcement, yeah, he's, right. he's hearing these same complaints we're hearing. Right. Eric, cops are really unhappy about this. Yes, and that is a word to the wise. The organized labor of police officers are just about universally against this. And given that this is 
a state that has the political climate that it has, for police officers to be against this, it must really be bad. Right, because police officers, I mean, most of the cops I know, they're very strong Second Amendment advocates and you know, they want to support gun rights, but, you know, so when you see them saying, I have a problem with this law, mm-hmm. I think I think it's deeper. We're talking today to our legal roundtable. That is Mark Smith, a former vice chancellor and dean of career services at Washington University. We're also joined by Eric Banks, uh, who's in practice at Banks Law, and Nicole Gorofsky, who's at Gorofsky Law. And if you have questions or even some comments for our panel, you can join us, 314-382-8255. Again, that's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air. I'm going to go to the phone lines. Jerry is calling from O'Fallon. Jerry, hi. You're on St. Louis on the air. Well, uh, I guess the complete absurdity of this situation with a gun law um, it, is, it just defies logic to me. It's like, I can't believe that our attorney general, uh, he has to know that he's not going to prevail, at, but what is the end game, if you know that in mind, how far do you carry out this kabuki theater? Uh, and then what is going to be the... Um, you know, when it's when it's eventually overturned, uh, again, I, I don't see. It, you know, is he really? Does he actually believe he's going to prevail? Or again, how far do you carry it out before you really reach? I mean, we're past the point of absurdity, but. Jerry, you've got a good question there. Nicole, I find myself wondering, um, you know, this was passed by the state legislature. As much as people aren't happy with a whole lot of things Eric Schmidt is doing, um, and by that I mean there's a whole lot of St. Louis liberals who aren't happy about what Eric Schmidt is doing. Um, He has to defend what the legislature has passed here. That's correct. You know, and I won't, you know, I won't necessarily speak for what's in people's minds when they do pass things like this, but I do know that there has been you know, kind of an issue with a lot of the people in the state, Missouri state legislature not being lawyers. And um, so there, you know, there, there may not be people who are thinking that, you know, far enough out about the legal issues. And I think a lot of, because legislators are politicians, there's a lot of political thinking going on. Mm-hmm. And then the state's lawyers have to find some way to defend it. I'm not saying that, that Schmidt does not want to defend this. I think it's in his wheelhouse and wants to defend it. But his office would probably be required to do that, even if he didn't feel that way. That's right. So I want to talk about another matter involving state politics. In 2019, officials in various St. Louis County municipalities filed a lawsuit seeking to have a state law declared unconstitutional. The law said this, quote, no contribution or expenditure of public funds shall be made directly by any officer, employee, or agent of any political subdivision to advocate, support, or oppose any ballot measure or candidate for public office. Well, these officials who sued said that prohibition violated their First Amendment rights. The circuit court agreed. And so it was appealed up to the Missouri Supreme Court in a unanimous opinion in this past month. The Supreme Court disagreed. The justices said this wasn't about free speech. This was about the use of public funds. You can talk, but you can't use uh, the funds that come through your office to do it. Now, reading the Missouri Supreme Court opinion, this seems so clear cut to me. Is it as clear cut as they made it look, Eric? Yes, it is. Yes. And I was intrigued by the lawsuit because basic political science 101, you cannot use public funds to advocate a political position. 
Yeah. So what's what's wrong with this? Yeah, it seems like multiple states have laws exactly like this, and this has always been the deal. Mark, how did the lower court get this so wrong? I think they they put a lot of, they, you know, when you implicate a fundamental right, um, the courts then uh, go into what's called strict scrutiny mode. Um, most of the time, they're looking at a rational basis. Does this law relate? Eh, it doesn't have to be the best law, but and but when you go into strict scrutiny, it's very tough to get by. And I think maybe the court took that a little too. Um, uh, they, they started talking about different hypothetical situations where a person might be confused. So I'm an elected official. Somebody writes me about a ballot proposition, and I want to respond to them on my work email, um, not advocating but just responding that that might have some kind of chilling effect. And so um, I, I tend to agree with Eric. I think, um, you know, the, the appellate level got it right seems like this is okay. It's also the law that was challenged has been extended now specifically to include school boards, charter schools, schools. So it's it's much broader than it was before. Interesting. So the Supreme Court weighing in on this, this is what's made it broader? No, no. The oh. legislature changed it. That had yeah. happened. Okay. Yeah. So it was interesting to read this opinion from the Missouri Supreme Court. As you say, the lower court got into a bunch of hypotheticals, right, and that's right. how they came to their conclusion. The Supreme Court did not get into these hypotheticals. They write the words advocate, support, or oppose are commonly understood by a person of ordinary intelligence. They keep using this person of ordinary intelligence. Nicole, am I reading this right, that the court seems a little bit salty? Well, there were two different issues there. So the first issue was whether or not it violated the First Amendment. And it, Mark had that exactly right when they the, the lower court got into the, all of these examples and forgot to take a step back and say, wait a minute, is this even a, have direct effect on speech? And no, it wasn't. It was actually public funds and how you use them in speech. And that's actually that's a totally different issue, whether you can use public funds to affect speech. But then there was a second issue, and the second issue was that uh, they were claiming that the um, language in the um, in the bill itself or, or in the law itself was vague and confusing. And believe it or not, our legal jurisprudence, excuse me, um, says that as long as the statute uses everyday language and the statute's terms can be understood by a person of ordinary intelligence. The statute is <clears throat> not vague such that it viol violates the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. So that was what was applied. And this was everyday language. There was really nothing in um, the language of the statute that was, you know, unusual or confusing. It's interesting how sometimes um, court opinions can be so complicated to read and as a non-lawyer one is just struggling and then you read something like this from the Missouri Supreme Court and they are just like writing it almost as if a fifth grader could read it. I love it. We are talking today to our legal roundtable. That is Nicole Garofsky. We're also joined by Mark Smith and Eric Banks. We need to take a quick break uh, but when we come back we'll continue this discussion. We'll talk about a couple of interesting cases involving private employers. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. Welcome back. We are talking today to our legal roundtable, and that includes Mark Smith, a former vice chancellor and dean of career services at Washington University. We're also joined by Eric Banks, a former state prosecutor and city counselor for the city of St. Louis. He's now in private practice at Banks Law. And we're also joined by Nicole Gorofsky. She's a former prosecutor in federal and circuit court. She's now in private practice at Gorofsky Law. So a recent lawsuit was filed in St. Louis County Circuit Court. This says a company called Baxter International, this is an international company, they hired a local man in 2000 and they knew or should have known he had multiple protection orders filed against him. They argued that the company was notified about his behavior on multiple occasions and that they not only continued to employ him, but provided him with a cell phone, a travel budget, a computer, a company car. They say he used these things in his harassment. Nicole, could the company be liable for something that he did on his private time, not related to his employment, if he's using these tools of the company and they're paying him a salary? It could be. So part of the lawsuit includes that um, they, the company gave this uh, employee a cell phone, a travel budget, a, a computer, and a company car, and that the employee used these items in the harassment campaign. So, um, you know, our law can be really antiquated. We call those things chattel. Um, chattel? But they gave, yeah, chattel. So, in other words, that's so, it, what the employer gave the employee was chattel, meaning items for use in his work that he then misused. Um, and, and so there can be an argument there that they should have supervised him in the use of the items that they gave him for work that he then turned around and used to harass somebody. So when we talk about this chattel, it seems like just about everybody has some sort of uh, company computer or phone these days. How can a company supervise? Yeah. So, so here's, I think, uh, the way employers can be held liable for the exit. And there's kind of three big baskets. One is um, under this doctrine of respondent superior. If the employer is responsible for the acts of his employee that occur within the scope of employment, and that's the big limitation. So if you hit me in the head while we're talking, that probably KWMU did not, you know, hire you to do that. They, they and, did not. I'll, no, I'll stipulate and, and to that. So <laughs> probably outside the scope of your employment. So they're not going to be liable. And I would I would typically sue the employer because they're typically going to have deeper pockets. They than have the a employee. lot more money than I yeah. do. I'll also stipulate Although to that. Although it is public radio. So, you know, um, it's not going to be like they're loaded. Right. And and so so within the scope and then there's this interesting concept. It's one of my favorite legal concepts called frolic and detour. We can get back to that if you'd like. But then the second big thing would be negligent hiring. And that seems like kind of what they're arguing here a little bit, that you hired this guy and you should have known this was going on. And, you know, employers, 
do have a duty to do some investigation. It's not exhaustive and it varies. Um, and then the third big bucket would be kind of harassment. And so think of like sexual harassment in the workplace or something like that. And if you're put on notice and you have a duty to have procedures in place so it can be reported. Um, so I don't think we have the defendant's response. At least I couldn't see it. So there's a lot of allegations here. You know, I, I suspect Baxter's going to say, whoa, 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 this is not what happened. Right. Um, we didn't know this was going on or we did a background check and this didn't turn up. Um, but uh, so of these, negligent hiring seems like probably their strongest kind of argument that there was something wrong with this person. You didn't find it or some kind of harassment, um, They particularly if it's um, based on sex. She was harassed because she was a woman. Then, uh, and, and they, Even if she wasn't a fellow employee, say this was somebody he just knew in his personal life, they could be eligible that was, for... That was part of what I wanted to know. Yeah. So that would, that would help us understand the case a lot more. Is this somebody he met on the job? Is this somebody he met yeah. in the performance of his job? Like, was this a potential client? There's a, there are a lot of what-ifs in this situation. But it doesn't have to be an employee. It could be like a, a customer or something. Or, or right. you know, if the Xerox repairman comes in and, and sexually harasses the receptionist, the employer still has to do something about that. Yeah. So if it's someone he met strictly in his personal life, let's say he's just on Tinder, that's going to be a harder case to make. But if it's well, somebody that he met on a work call, even if they're not in the office, they're not a fellow employee, this is something where it could open the company up in a way it wouldn't otherwise. Yeah. And, and, and the suit says that the company was told about this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even if it's somebody unrelated, I think there's probably some arguable um, idea that they need to do something or respond or talk to them. And if they just, uh, you know, you're never good just ignoring stuff. And so if you're an employer and somebody contacts you and they say, hey, I met this guy on Tinder, these terrible things happened, as an employer, you still need to take that seriously, Eric? Yes. Yes. I don't think it's much of a shield that where the harassment occurred or where the people met, companies have responsibilities for their employees and Missouri's an employment at will state you can fire anybody at any time for any reason but for the reason that they're a member of a protected class and if you cannot police people under these circumstances will be unto you. So, Mark, I'm kind of curious, and I'm kind of wondering if I'm about to open a can of worms. Dare I ask about frolic and detour? Well, okay. This is like my Mark McCluskey, you know, because I know you. You're obsessed with frolic and detour? It's my favorite thing to teach about because it just sounds so fun. It does sound fun. So, like I said, employers are responsible for the acts of their employees within the scope of their employment. So say I'm a traveling salesman or, and I go around delivering bread. I'm not traveling. I deliver bread. I'm the bread delivery guy. And I'm on my route. If I then go over to the cross the river to buy cocaine, and while I'm there buying cocaine, I hit somebody, I'm probably on a frolic and detour. I think that would technically be called a frolic. And, um, and the employer would not be liable. If, on the other hand, I'm making my bread stops and then I stop for a cup of coffee on my stop, and they know I do that and they're okay with that, mm-hmm. that's more, I think, t- t- technically a detour. The employer would still be liable. Something you're not hiding from your employer is different than something well, where you're, you're going on Well, it's more that a- it's contemplated within yeah. your job and something that's clearly outside. So 
as a lawyer, you spend a lot of time with your employers deciding whether something's a frolic and detour. Because on the one hand, it depends on who got hurt. If it was some third party, you're, you're immediately trying to say it's a frolic. It was outside the scope. Mm-hmm. But if it's your own employee, then all of a sudden you're thinking of ways to make it within the work um, environment because you want it to be covered by workers' comp. Ah. Much more limited liability. So, you know, it's, you know, this is the old joke about lawyers. You know, you say, what's two plus two? The mathematician says four. The accountant says, well, FIFO, LIFO, but it's probably four. And the lawyer says, what do you want it to be? And, and that's, in this case, we're like, who got hurt? then let's start making the arguments whether we're going to put them in or outside the scope of employment. In or outside the scope of frolic and detour. Uh, well, is, scope of employment, yeah. but frolic and detour is a way to get you out. Yeah. Right. I, well, this is going to be my new favorite thing. Yeah. I hate to break it to you guys. We are going to have to discuss this going forward. It's great forward. cocktail talk. It is, you know, it, it is quite interesting. Yeah. Mark, I can see how you would be good at parties. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have to talk about what happened at a treatment facility in Baldwin. Uh, they handle eating disorders. It's called Alsana. It turns out this place has a long history of lawsuits against it. Well, this most recent lawsuit, a woman referred to only as Jane Doe says she was assigned an unlicensed therapist with no experience. This therapist allegedly convinced the woman to break up with her partner. This is even while they're socializing together outside of what was happening at this center. Some inappropriate things. And the therapist, meanwhile, made a series of, quote, deeply disturbing statements on social media. Among those statements, according to the lawsuit, quote, I reflected and realized I hurt others on purpose because it makes me feel good. And, quote, there's a darkness in me, and quote, some days I hate myself and I cause hell in other people's lives. Eric Banks, how bad is this for her employer? Real, real, real bad. Yeah, it's real bad. Um, starting with the fact that this person's an unlicensed therapist. Yeah. And in Missouri, you can't even put the name therapist, put the word therapist behind your name unless you have a underlying license in a healing profession healing profession like medicine, nursing, social work, and the like. So for this person to be unlicensed and carrying out this way, the ramifications are going to be very bad. Okay, so there's a huge problem. She's not licensed. Then she's making these comments on social media. Let's say that she started making these comments after they had already hired her, but these are comments that that they can see or someone brings to their attention. Nicole, would their best move be to immediately terminate this employee? Absolutely, 100%. I mean, so where Mark was giving a little lesson in what's in the course and scope of employment, this is this one's much more clear. This is clearly her employment. I mean, first of all, you know, Eric is 100% right. How is she hired to be a therapist without a therapist license? Then second of all, if she was hired to be a therapist, then in providing this therapy, she's, you know, got this underlying concept that she likes to hurt people and certainly having inappropriate relationships with the people that she's you know, I'm putting in air quotes, treating. So this is this is clearly an abuse of the position. It's a failure to supervise. It's all kinds of wrong. Nicole, I think of this as the type of case that if I were bringing a lawsuit, I might hire you as a lawyer to bring this kind of case. If you saw this set of facts, would you be salivating? Yeah. Yeah, I would take this case. <laughs> Nicole so, would so, take this case. <laughs> so as a, uh, as a former representative of employers, the guy who would defend this case, you know, there are always two sides to the story. And the plaintiff, when you read the plaintiff's 
uh, petition, it's always like, oh, my God, this is horrible. And then you talk to your client. It turns out, no, that's not true. That's not true. And or it was this. But there are these allegations. I, I agree completely with Nicole and Eric. These are very serious allegations. There was also um, an allegation that the, the person talked about other clients. So that's a clear HIPAA violation. Uh, HIPAA doesn't provide a private right of action for individuals, but you could have the Office of Civil Rights of HHS coming in to investigate. And, and so these are very serious allegations. Um, this is the old, I think, Castlewood. Old Castlewood, yeah, that's right. That's right. had some issues in the past. They have certainly been in the, in the newspaper. Uh, the Post-Dispatch has done a good job of, of covering some of the many things involving this place. They say that they have changed, that they're doing differently yeah. today, that this lawsuit could be a problem. And I think the former, the people who founded it have been replaced. They have in moved this on. New, Yeah. Yeah. We're talking today to our legal roundtable, learning a new phrase, frolic and detour. I'm very excited about my ongoing legal education. Our panel today includes Mark Smith, uh, Nicole Garofsky, and Eric Banks. We're going to have to take a quick break here. Coming up next, we'll discuss a possible get-out-of-jail-free card for statutory rape. Could there be such a thing? This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. Today is our legal roundtable. We're discussing a host of legal matters that are in the in the news here in the St. Louis area. Our panel today includes Mark Smith, a former vice chancellor and dean of career services at Washington University. We're also joined by Eric Banks, a former state prosecutor and city counselor for the city of St. Louis. He's now in private practice at Banks Law. And last but not least, we're joined by Nicole Gorofsky. She's a former prosecutor, uh, both in federal court as well as circuit court. She's now in private practice at Karofsky Law. So a case that was in the news uh, this month near the Joplin area caught my attention. A Missouri teacher facing criminal charges for having sex with a student. She found a novel way to get out of it. She married the student. Now Bailey, Ta- Bailey Turner was 23 when she allegedly had sex with a 17-year-old student in Sarcoxy, Missouri. Now she's 26. And with the trial approaching, the two have now wed. The local news reports that because because of that, he cannot be asked to testify against her. Nicole, I know you've handled a, a variety of sex crimes as a prosecutor and in private practice. Is it that simple? He cannot be asked to testify against her. So it's not something as clear cut as someone's charged with statutory rape and then they marry the child and now they're out of statutory rape. For example, you couldn't marry a 12 year old and now your rape charge goes away. But what we have in Missouri that I think surprises a lot of people is something called the spousal privilege. So um, it's a um, it's more of an evidentiary rule, which is that you can't be compelled. You can't be forced to testify against your spouse. So 
this student, I believe, was 17 years old when the statutory rape occurred. The student turned 18, which I believe you have the right to get married at 18 in Missouri. So the student did get married to the teacher. And then um, now the prosecutors can't force that student to testify against uh, the statutory rapist. So it's so if they don't have a victim who's willing to testify against the perpetrator, then there's really no uh, there's no case for a prosecution there. So um, unfortunately, we do have that spousal privilege here in Missouri. Let's say that this teacher was a serial statutory rapist, that this was somebody really bad that they wanted to go after. Um, is there a way that they could bring this case without this the victim testifying? Is there, is there a way of creative lawyering where other people could testify to, to what they saw? We saw, you know, testify to what he'd said in deposition. Mark, you're, you're yeah, nodding. Yeah. There I could mean, be a way. The, 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 so you've got this spousal privilege. And just kind of backing up big picture, you know, this is created by statute, as Nicole said. So um, different states have different privileges. And a lot of people have turned attorney-client privilege, priest penitent, different from the uh, privilege of self in, against self-incrimination. That's a constitutional right. Mm-hmm. Everyone has this. This is different. And if I'm married to someone, I'm married to my wife, Lisa, um, I can't, and, and if she wants to testify against me, she can't. I, I can't enforce that privilege against her. Yeah. Um, but, but if she doesn't want to testify, she doesn't have to. And because we want to create a, a bond in the marital relationship and not create this. So in your situation, if somebody else saw this person having sex, they could certainly testify to that. Um, the, if that person, the, the married person wanted to testify, they could. And in fact, there are some specific exceptions for like child and, and I think uh, ch- child abuse and um, kind of uh, maybe it might be murder or might be some other stuff. But um, so there are some ways around it, but I think in this case, the the boy who's now 18 doesn't want to testify is probably not going to go anywhere. There was an interesting article when I was looking at this in the Kansas City Star from a few years ago. Apparently in Missouri, you can get married at 15. I didn't know that. And Missouri has become like the place for underage people to come to get married and um, to kind of protect from the statutory rape charges. And statutory rape is you have um, consensual sex to the extent it can be consensual with a minor um, between somebody who's over 21 and somebody who I think is under 18. And it doesn't matter that they, were, they said it was okay. This law says by statute, you, that's, you cannot give consent, so it's rape. Yeah, well, what a thing for Missouri to be known you know, for, a the, destination these, state these, for underage these, marriages. This art, set of articles in Kansas City, start. It's very disturbing. I encourage people to look at it. Nicole, I have some sort of vague memory that at some point there was some attempt to crack down on us being a, a destination state for for people trying to flee, uh, the, uh, you know, trying to have these underage marriages. I don't think that ever happened. Do you know? No, I don't. And, and I do know, I thought there was some age at which you can do it with a parent's permission. Right. I think that's part um, of it. I, no, I don't think parent. there's been a crackdown on that. Wow. Well, another thing that Missouri can be proud of. Eric, it sounds like here the state could find a way to bring these charges, but with the alleged victim now married to the alleged perpetrator, this is a case a lot of prosecutors just are not going to want to touch. That's right. I think a prosecutor would be within his or her rights to use prosecutorial discretion 
to make this one go away. So speaking of prosecutors, I want to touch briefly on a case involving circuit attorney Kim Gardner. Uh, She was sued by Dave Rowland, who's been a panelist on this show. His client had sought records on her communications related to the investigation of then-Governor Eric Greitens. Uh, That office declined to hand over those records, so Dave and his client sued. Her office simply did not respond. They didn't get around to responding until 77 days after their response was due. Well, at that point, they showed up. They said they wanted to to respond to this. The judge gave them another shot. This time, they were six days late. They filed an identical petition that apparently wasn't responsive to the matter at hand. So the judge ordered Gardner's office to pay $5,000 and fees. He said the office had made a, quote, reckless, dilatory, and intentional refusal to file a timely, responsive pleading. Gardner's office appealed, and in this last month, they lost that appeal. I find myself wondering about deadlines here. Um, Nicole, are you surprised that they lost this appeal? No. And I think, you know, setting the fact that this was Gardner's office aside, I think that this is becoming a big issue, even particularly with um, the Sunshine Law. I think more and more people are having, um, are getting very frustrated with noncompliance with the Sunshine Law. And it has very strict deadlines written right into the statute. And Um, I think that there are a lot of entities out there in the state that are just not taking those seriously. And now I think that there are a lot of individuals out there that are starting to sue over that. And I I actually think in general, it's a good thing. I think, um, you know, when those deadlines are in the statute, they have to be taken seriously. And I think judges are taking those deadlines seriously as well. So the idea of being 77 days late, uh, do you think Judge McGraw showed Gardner's office more than the usual courtesy by letting it go that far? Or is it possible in, in cases there's, you know, some things get away with you. You get that second chance. If they'd been on time, mm-hmm. maybe no harm, no foul. I would have never I think come maybe to- if there was some evidence yeah. that it was a mistake or if, um, you know, um, it was overlooked or there was some sort of hardship, I think that that would have gone a long way. But th- I don't think there was evidence of that here. Mm-hmm. Right. And you can always ask for an extension or something like that. And just so your listeners know, if, if one of your listeners gets sued, you can't just ignore the lawsuit because then the court will enter something called a default judgment. And that's those bad. are real. Those are real things. Yeah, they're enforceable, and and it's hard to undo a default judgment. So you know, the worst thing you can do is just ignore something and hope it goes away. Yeah, I, I like that method generally in life, but I feel like <laughs> if somebody serves me with legal papers, doesn't work. Good. Hey, I want to um, clarify something. Um, it turns out in July of 2018, Missouri's governor signed a bill raising the minimum age of marriage with parental consent to 16. 16 and a, from 15. Wow. Yeah. And additionally, <laughs> the bill prevents anyone 21 or older um, from marrying someone under the age of 18. That went into effect in So August now we can all sleep well at night yeah. knowing that. Yeah. <laughs> It's not as bad as it was. You can get a car license and get married. <laughs> yes. <laughs> get these two things while you're there. Yeah. One-stop shopping. Okay, so our final couple of minutes here, we need to talk about the McCloskeys. As, as Mark uh, referred to earlier, I, I have to do this every month. It's just mm-hmm. part of this show. But this month, there is some news in this case. They had previously pled guilty. These are the, the two uh, married trial attorneys. They had pled guilty to misdemeanors after brandishing guns at protesters. Um, now the Missouri Supreme Court has suspended their law licenses indefinitely, but that suspension is stayed. Eric, what does that mean exactly? This basically means that they're on probation. So if they satisfactorily um, satisfy the terms and conditions of the probation, 
then they can be apply for reinstatement. Um, yeah, it's not as bad as it appears. And quite frankly, um, my concern is the grounds in which they were suspended, moral turpitude. And I don't know what that means. Yeah. And I think moral turpitude means whatever you want it to mean. And um, I was always taught in law school that if your law degree furthered the commitment of the crime, then that's moral turpitude. But in this case, waving the guns, that's assault, but you don't ha it's not promoted by having a law degree. Yeah. Um, so, so do you think this discipline was, was potentially uh, went too far, sets a weird precedent? No, I think it's win-win. I think as reprehensible as the underlying act is, it has nothing to do with the practice of law. So I think it was a good um, face-saving split the baby decision. So that is a good reason to suspend, basically. Okay, because this didn't have directly to do with, with their work as trial attorneys. Mark, they have to do 100 hours of community service. Yeah. And as we know, Mark McCloskey is running for Senate. Could he do those 100 hours in a way that could also help his political career? And that would count? Well, I mean, I think... Um, there's a monitor. He has to do quarterly reports uh, while he's on probation. And I would assume... Kind of like having a probation officer. Mark right, has right. to check in. Yeah, yeah. And so, and I think I mentioned this before. I, I chaired a bar disciplinary panel for about a dozen years. And we would have lawyers who would come in and do quarterly reports. This was usually for um, pretty serious situations. So I would imagine you'd have to get preclearance. And so I don't think it's going to be like legal work for his campaign or something like that. But... Um, I would imagine there'd be some flexibility there, um, but that's a lot of time. I mean, 100 hours, that's a, you know, you've, you can figure it out yourself. You, you know, you work 40 hours to build 30 hours, and so that's like a f over a month of work, on, right? And if I'm doing the math right, I think so. That's a fair uh, amount of yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, so it's pretty su substantial amount. Nicole, in our final moments here, does that feel like this 100 hours of community service, does this feel like an appropriate thing for the, the bar to have meted down or the Office of Disciplinary Counsel? Yeah, I think so. I think um, certainly doing pro bono work is, you know, for a, a bar association that is a legal association, I think that's a... That's a um, reasonable punishment to give somebody, I think it, yeah, I think it is reasonable. So this one might be one that everybody agrees. This was handled appropriately. It's nice to end with some consensus here today. Nicole Gorofsky, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Nicole is a former prosecutor. She's now in private practice at Gorofsky Law. Mark Smith, thank you for joining us. Great to be here as always. And Mark is a former vice chancellor and dean of career services at Washington University. Eric Banks, thank you. Thank you. And Eric is a former state prosecutor and city counselor for the city of St. Louis. He's now in private practice at Banks Law. Today's episode was produced by Sarah Fenske, with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorff. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. 
If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.